Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Very exciting ground to cover today. It's a pleasure to have you all with me. Um, We are going to ask a beautiful question. Thank you, Jeremiah. And the question today is, what is real? And it's an important question to ask because it is only after we know the nature of a thing can we understand what it is for. So to figure out a meaningful way to be in the world requires a serious inquiry into the nature of the world as to the stuff that this world is made of. So today, we will ask that philosopher's question, what is real? Of what is the universe made? And by consequence, of what are you made? So what's your primordial substance, what in philosophy they call the ontological primitive, the base building block of reality? You know, and previously you might have thought atoms or some of us might have thought Lego blocks or whatever it is. Um, And we're going to investigate what this tradition teaches in terms of what substance this world is made of. And it's an important question to ask, undoubtedly, with very deep applications. So hopefully the outcome of today's discussion will, like every discussion, be a fearlessness a freedom from the fear of death, uh, a lack of craving and restless desire, because ultimately, this is what these teachings inspire in those who receive them. So with that goal in sight, I will give you a few arguments to demonstrate what substance this universe is made of. Um, And as always, these arguments aim to show you in the immediacy of your own experience here and now, the truth of um, the truth that they point to. So as always, we do this disclaimer, nothing I tell you today is true. Please don't believe me. Don't believe me ever. Because ultimately, all I have to offer is words and concepts. And these words and concepts are not it. You know, the words and the concepts that we exchange will never substitute for the things to which they are pointing. So these concepts are meaningless and useless in truth, but they are helpful, relatively speaking. They are helpful insofar as they are able to point you beyond the concepts to a truth that you can verify for yourself. You know, so even when Jesus the Christ would say, let he who hath ears hear, let he who hath eyes see, it's still experiential. You could be given the concepts, but if you cannot hear and see to what those concepts point to, they are of no avail. Um, Remember that truth is a lived experience, not a concept, not a dogma. Uh, So please don't believe anything. You know, this isn't a belief or faith-based practice. It's an experiential practice. Um, And the focus is on verifying these truths in your own life. So if at any point something in our discussion doesn't quite check out in terms of your own experience of life, please feel free to drop a question in the chat. And as you know, after our discussion, we have uh, a nice extended questions and answers section. So feel free to save your questions for then too. Okay, that being said, 
the schools of Indian philosophy are so vast that what I have to offer you is like one grain of sand, one view among many. Um, and I'm coming to you now from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. Advaita in Sanskrit literally means not to. So it's the philosophy of not to. And uh, one Western philosopher actually uh, defined it as such. In the garden of Indian spirituality, Advaita Vedanta is the most fragrant flower. And I tend to agree. Um, the dualist will disagree and, and we'll have some nice friendly debate. So from Advaita Vedanta, we get a teaching as to what the ontological primitive is or, or what the universe is made of and by consequence what you are made of. And that's what we'll talk about today. Now it's important we ask this question because it seems like we're at a dead end in the Western material sciences. Have you noticed this? We're in a little bit of a dilemma when it comes to seeking answers through this popular means of knowledge we call science. Now, ideally, science is a technique. Ideally, science is a method. And ideally, everyone should be practicing it in their daily life. So when the early philosophers of the Enlightenment in Europe started expounding on the concept of science, it was to liberate the individual from dogma. It was to say, you don't need to take anything on faith. You ought to find out for yourself. And the way you do that is by looking around, observing, and coming up with uh, perhaps a preliminary explanation of why you think what you see is the way you see it. Uh, something that's called a hypothesis, you know. And then you go out into the world and you test that hypothesis. And if it's shown to not work, then you discard it in favor of something more able, more aligned with reality. Welcome, Fabricio. Good to have you. So that's the scientific method. Ideally, it's to liberate you from dogma. It's a tool that we placed in your hands so you can use it on an individual level. Um, so if nothing else, science is the practice of empirical observation or firsthand data and then reasoning from that. Yoga, or the approaches of the South Asian spiritual traditions, are very similar in principle. We don't like dogma, we don't like beliefs, we prefer that you realize these concepts, and that's always on the level of observation. So you must be able to experience, to some degree, these things that we talk about. Whether in meditation, whether through philosophical argument, they should be experiential. So in principle, the South Asian philosophical schools and the scientific method as expounded by the early proponents of the Enlightenment, like Francis Bacon, they agree in principle. But look at what has happened. It's no longer a method. Science is now a religion. It's a body of information presided over by a mysterious cloaked uh, clergy known as scientists, and we are all too ready to outsource the search for truth to them. Furthermore, nor are we hearing reports from the battlefield. We're never really talking to the people in laboratories. We're never talking to the scientists themselves. Often, all we interact with is a BuzzFeed article, what we might call pop science. You know, so at very best, we're reading Nature magazine or something. But even then, there is some level of editorial um, dressing up, if you will. Um, and the reasoning has already been done for you. So you never see the data, but you're tempted to accept the reasoning that comes from that data. So we must first criticize that. You know, don't take anything on faith 
And that includes the dictums and maxims handed to you um, by the Church of Science, you know. Ultimately, you must find out for yourself. But let's look at the Church of Science and see what uh, it can tell us in terms of the world that we live in. So at present, this is the situation we find ourselves in. 96% of this universe is unknowable. It's of the mysterious quality dark matter or dark energy, which we don't necessarily need to talk about, but enough or suffice to say that this dark matter or dark energy is completely unknowable. It's a, a quotient. They've plugged it into the equations out of a misunderstanding or a non-understanding of what this stand-in dark energy represents. So 96% of the universe is unknowable. Of the 4% that remains, most of it, 99.8%, I believe, is invisible interstellar dust. You know, So a lot of it is invisible. Of the 0.2% that is available to us, the atomic visible stuff, there is a further problem. And that is the problem of the atoms themselves. So in philosophy, we call this the hard problem of matter. And I'll write it down here. Hard problem of matter. It was formulated by the younger Strawson. Strawson is the name of this philosopher. And Strawson, he formulated this uh, problem as such. The more you look for matter, the more it runs away from you. Have you noticed that? It's a very ironic thing. But a while ago, we thought that there was such a thing as um, stuff. You know, in Aristotle's time, for Aristotle, you could feel and touch the tree. You could feel and touch the rock. So the tree and the rock were basic building blocks of reality. They were substances, meaning the ontological primitive, the most basic thing in the world. And then flash forward a couple centuries, and uh, a scientist named uh, Dalton would say, no, 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 made of stuff. And so the table that you see, the chair, the tree, that's composed of discrete, indivisible particles called atoms. Of course, Dalton was borrowing, borrowing heavily from some Greek philosophers like Democritus, who already kind of pioneered this, you know, idea of an indivisible, discrete particle of matter. So for Dalton, who, by the way, was a bowling nut, he liked to to lawn bowl, I believe. So one day while he was lawn bowling, he looked at the spherical structure of his bowling ball and he looked up at the moon and the sun and he thought, you know, if all the biggest objects in the world, ah, there's the bird, if all the biggest objects in the world are spherical, surely the smallest objects are spherical too. And then you get the model of atoms, which for many, many centuries and perhaps even now, we accept as, okay, atoms. You know, that's the basic structure of reality. And you can do all sorts of neat tricks. You know, you can put um, uh, uh, balls into a big cylinder and you can demonstrate how smaller balls fit into bigger balls. And then you can see how, um, you know, diffusion happens and all that kind of stuff. And it was a nice model. Flash forward a couple of years and a gentleman named Ernest Rutherford is starting to realize eerily that what previously was a discrete, um, indivisible particle of matter is in fact mostly empty space. So what Ernest Rutherford is doing is he's shooting alpha particles at a steel sheet or whatever, and he's finding that most of the particles are going right through. 
So he's realizing that this sheet of, I think it was tin or aluminum that he had, uh, wasn't, wasn't solid. His alpha particles were shooting through. It was permeable to some degree. But, and this was largely because of an error that one of his lab assistants noticed, there was a small degree of deflection. So the alpha particles were bouncing off of something. And that's what drew him to the idea that atoms are mostly empty space, but don't worry, the matter is in the center. Okay. So Dalton's concept of matter, these balls, these solid atoms, was in trouble because most of it seemed like empty space, but don't worry, matter can be saved. In the middle, there's, there's a nucleus. Okay, sigh of relief, you know, matter is there, it's the nucleus. But today, as we look deeper and deeper into this so-called nucleus, there are further subatomic particles, further subdivisions like quarks and muons and things of that sort. And it seems like the more we zero in on this phenomenon known as matter, the more it runs away from us. And so there are schools like the string theory school that broke away um, from this kind of materialist school and started to explore different axioms. Maybe matter isn't made of atoms. Maybe it's made of these things called strings. So they went off to go and study their strings, you know. Okay, importantly, in the hard problem of matter, we're being confronted with this paradox. We used to think the basic building block of reality was matter, but the more we look for it, the less of it we find. So what do we do about that? And some of the pioneering schools in quantum mechanics are starting to reframe the question. They're saying that as long as we see matter as the basic building block of reality, we're always going to have this problem. We're never going to know what it is. And more than that, we're never really going to know why it is that invisible matter appears to us like this. So it's not enough to know what matter is. It's also important to know why we experience it the way that we experience it. So how is it that we look around and we see a world of things? Although quantum mechanics tells us it's mostly empty space. Why is it that when we touch, we feel solidity, even though we know through the latest, most up-to-date experimentation that it's empty space? So now we're at a dilemma. We're at a paradox, so to speak. And there are many terrible paradoxes all around quantum mechanics. Yes, and you will hear this bird in my partner's parents' house uh, comment quite a bit during this lecture. <laughs> he can speak. I'm trying to teach him Sanskrit. We chant every day. Thus far, I haven't heard a Gayatri Mantra from him yet. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> He'll chant with Ryan. You'll both sit together and chant that mantra. Yes. So there are some very terrible paradoxes in uh, quantum mechanics, especially when you think of the double slit experiment and the particle wave phenomena. Um, and it seems like when you look at the 0.1% uh, visible atomic matter, it turns out to be mostly invisible anyway. You're kind of in trouble there. So in that 0.1% of the universe, some, I think, 60 billion habitable planets are contained in that number, by the way, in what they call the Goldilocks zone. I mean, this is a pretty broad spectrum of stuff, but it's still only one grain of sand in the beach of reality, you know? And that grain of sand, when we hold it and look at it, we find that our models are not sufficient at explaining it. So some of the pioneering scientists in the quantum mechanics fields and other places are realizing we're coming at this the wrong way. We're treating matter 
like the ontological primitive. So we're treating matter as the actual substance of the universe. And we're seeing consciousness, the phenomena of you being aware of yourself and the world around you, we're seeing that as an emergent property. So in the hard sciences, consciousness is something that happens as a byproduct from matter, from the primordial soup of stuff known as atoms. There are chemicals and those chemicals come together in a certain way and they produce the body and the body eventually produces the brain and through a long series of natural selection and variation, you finally find yourself equipped with this brain. And this brain, for whatever reason, produces this world. And that should, that should kind of perplex you and you should ask why. Why is this world being produced? What is consciousness and where is it coming from? Or more importantly, how is it that inert matter is able to produce consciousness? So this in philosophy is called um, the hard problem of consciousness. And the phrasings are very interesting, right? Hard problem of matter and the hard problem of consciousness. This is by Chalmers. David Chalmers at Harvard right now is doing very nice work. Um, but so with the hard problem of matter, you get the hard problem of consciousness. No one can tell you how consciousness comes to be. The best hard science can do is by pointing out certain synaptic events that happen in the uh, brain. You know, so there are some neurosynaptic fibers and there's some electricity, but that's not yet an explanation, is it? You know, so we're still kind of stuck as to explaining how consciousness emerges. So here's the, uh, the new way to see it. Instead of seeing matter as coming first and consciousness arising out of matter, the ancient view from Advaita Vedanta is an inversion of that idea. It's actually the other way around. And today I hope to be able to demonstrate it to you and also show you why it's not solipsism. <laughs> so I hope to demonstrate to you today with argument and with an appeal to your own perceptual experience that awareness must necessarily come first. Time causation and space come out of awareness. And hopefully that will be clear today. Okay, before we get into that argument though, I wanna back up a little and say there are three paths that bring you to spirituality. You know, the first path we've talked about a lot together, that's the way of the cross uh, or the path of suffering, we call it. Most people come to spirituality via the way of the cross or the path of suffering. So most people, they're born into this world, they're handed certain ideas about who they are and what they're supposed to do in this world, and sooner or later they realize those ideas don't work. You know, So as well-meaning as our society was in giving us these ideas, it was like the blind leading the blind. You know, Our very hurt, very paranoid adults, meaning well, just downloaded their programs into us, and so we grew up inheriting a lot of the neuroses that they, you know, um, unfortunately had to deal with. And so when we go out into the world and we find that our paradigm doesn't work, we rough it out for a little while, you know. We, we try to make it work. We chase the pleasure. We run away from pain. We negotiate with our partners and we get into all sorts of difficult relationships and there's divorce and tragedy and much grief and eventually we come to our senses and we realize that the way we've been living or the concepts we've been cherishing, cherishing no longer do it for us. And then that opens us up 
to new concepts, new ways of looking at the world. So this was very notable in the 60s when the material straitjacket of the 50s showed a lot of the 60s kids how their parents had everything. They had all the things out of the catalogs, you know? Um, they had beautiful homes. The American dream was achieved. But why were they fighting all the time? You know, despite having all these beautiful TV dinners and a lot of movies to watch and Beatles on the stereo, why was there still so much dissatisfaction? And that was the necessary crack to let the light of ancient spirituality in. So once that materialist armor got a few chinks and once it cracked a little bit, um, the 60s children were open. They were excited. You know, Taoism came in, Buddhism came in, Hinduism came in, teachers from the East came to the West. Of course, they've had a pretty difficult time here. Um, a lot of them turned into cult figures and got lost in some of that. But um, this was a powerful opening. So the way of suffering is the way that most people come to spirituality, uh, but it's not a really foolproof way. The danger with the way of suffering is this. What happens when you start to acquire basic psychological wellness? It will happen. All of you are practicing. You're doing your asana. Your body will be immaculate. You'll be healthy. You won't have a cold. You're doing your pranayam. You'll be in control of your moods. You'll be less reactive. You know, pranayam is the control, the taking responsibility of your moods and your uh, feelings. So no longer do you feel like a victim reacting to things in the world around you. You'll be able to watch the news and be calm about it. And in fact, you'll probably lose your taste for the news. But uh, importantly, once your asana and pranayama start to establish in you a feeling of psychological wellness, what more is there? I mean, you came in because of suffering. Now the suffering is gone. Maybe your motivation to practice is gone too. You know, and, and, and that's dangerous because then you will just backslide. <laughs> Give it two years and you will backslide. So the way of suffering is the popular way and a good way to come to spirituality. But the risk of the way of suffering is that your suffering will alleviate. Um, and you might not be tempted to ask the question, what more is there? You know, beyond basic psychological wellness, what more is there to explore in spirituality? So you've given yourself a great body and great health. You might live for 120 years, as my grandmother did and many Indians do. So what? You'll still die, you know? Um, you still wouldn't have solved anything about life. Uh, maybe you acquire basic mental wellness, but then you die. And you haven't figured out what happens to the personality. So the risk of the way of suffering is that it's not complete in of itself. It must evolve into something else. Now there's another way, and it's called the path of ecstasy. So just like you can be alerted to spirituality through suffering, you can also be alerted to spirituality through its opposite. This might have come through an intense drug experience in which you came down from the high and wondered if there was a way to, you know, be in that state, stably experience what you experienced for a, a moment, for a glimpse while you were on acid or something, you know. Um, and maybe you were walking on the beach with your partner and the sun was setting in just, just a kind of way that it made you feel a certain way. You were at a rock show maybe and you were just moved. I mean, it wasn't the rock show. It wasn't the sunset because it didn't happen to your partner and it didn't happen to all the people at the concert. It was a personal, idiosyncratic, private experience that was unlike any other experience of joy or happiness or meaning. There was something in you that reacted to that moment as if you were opening up to it. 
There was a kind of opening up, a vulnerability, a softening into reality, if you, if you will. And most of you know what I'm talking about. It's impossible to describe because it's not quite happiness. It's not quite joy. It's something deeper than that. And it can come in moments of grief too. You know, it can come in moments of intense pain and sadness. You can feel this feeling. And that feeling is a glimpse into your natural state. And then you come to spirituality. And so spirituality says to you two promises. One, the end of all suffering. That's what the Buddha promised. Nirvana, the blowing out of the mind and body. And with that, all suffering. So spirituality gives you the solution to the path of suffering, the end of all suffering. But it also gives you another promise, the establishing permanently and stably of meaning. But the risk of this path is you can go on chasing highs. You know, if it was the high that brought you to spirituality, then no longer are you practicing for its own sake. You're practicing spirituality as a means to an end. And this can be a very risky path because the more you see your spirituality as a means, the more that end, oh sorry, the more the end will elude you. You know, so the more you're trying to get somewhere with your meditation, the harder it is to get there. What a paradox. You know, because you'll find yourself tensing up You'll sit in meditation and yesterday um, you, you would have suddenly had this profound experience, you know, and then today you're trying to have that profound experience again, uh, but it's not coming and you don't know why. And the more you try to get it, the more tense your jaw becomes, um, the more uncomfortable your seat and you're no longer meditating, you know, so that's the risk with the path of uh, ecstasy. But there is a third path. And that's the path we're talking about today. So the risk of walking the path of suffering is success. You know, the risk is psychological wellness and then you leave the spiritual work having not actually achieved anything, you know, and, and there will be backsliding. The risk of the path of ecstasy is you become so hooked to these, at first, fleeting moments of meaning that you start to chase. You hunger for those fleeting moments of meaning. And because they are so fleeting, they create this obsessive neurotic desire to get them back again. We all know this state, right? You had a brilliant meditation yesterday. So today you want to have that again. So you set everything up just like you did yesterday. Okay, I had the Nag Champa. No, no, no. It was dragon's blood. Okay, I had the dragon's blood yesterday. Um, what singing bowl did I use? Ah, it was in G. I'm going to use my G singing bowl. Uh, and what pose I sat in this pose, or maybe I sat here, it was at this time. And you become like a very obsessed, um, with perfecting all these external details so you can get the lemon juice, so to speak. You're squeezing your spirituality for a drop of that vitamin C infused vital fluid. <laughs> um, and then you don't get it. So the path of suffering and the path of ecstasy are great for beginners. They're a great way to get into spirituality, you know, and thank God suffering is there. And, and remember two weeks ago, we talked a lot about suffering and we talked about how suffering is actually an insight into your true nature. It's because you know that you are eternal, that these transient things cause you pain. It's because you know that your birthright is a state of stable peace, that these fluctuatings between joy and sorrow are a pain to you. So we discussed how in Kashmiri Shaivism, suffering is seen as this beautiful feedback mechanism. I mean, you wouldn't wish that you didn't feel pain. If you felt a hot dish, 
You kind of rely on that feeling of pain to pull your hand away. If you didn't have that feeling of pain, your hand would burn right off. So for intelligent action, some pain is necessary. For the correct spiritual understanding of life, a great deal of suffering is necessary. So thank God for suffering. It's a feedback mechanism. Brings you to the spiritual path, but at some point, the jet must leave the propellers. <laughs> Ecstasy is good. It, sh it points you to your true nature. The very fact that you're able to enjoy this feeling of bliss shows you... Babe, could you get the light for me? Yeah, thank you. Um, the very fact that you experience that pleasure is a glimpse into the pleasure that is your birthright. You know, in uh, I think the Viveka Chudaimini, Shankaracharya says something like this. All the pleasure you can experience in your life. So think all, everything, every orgasm, every chocolate cake, every award or trophy or Pulitzer Prize, all of that. Shankaracharya says, it's like a spray from the ocean of Ananda. It's like a stray spray from the ocean. And for that, we live, die, and fight. If only you knew you were the ocean, you wouldn't be so satisfied with little droplets, you know? So that's why the path of ecstasy is good. It shows you that you desire stuff, but what you desire is not actually the limited transient experience, but what that experience shows you about your true nature which is permanently established in that. So if you've ever felt that feeling, you know, of being at a sunset or just talking to friends late at night over Turkish coffee, um, it's so real, so authentic. That's your natural state. You know? So once you have the path of suffering, once you have the path of ecstasy, they bring you to the third path. And the third path, we call it the path of the philosopher. The path of insight, if you will. So that's when you start to ask, what is reality made of? Of what is the soul made of? What am I? What is it to live meaningfully in the world? You know, no longer are you interested really in your personal ending of suffering, nor are you interested in your personal accruing of pleasure or meaning. You're more interested in a deeper thing, a principle. So now it's less selfish. You see, by now, all your practice in spirituality should have proven to you that what you previously took to be your identity was a seeming construct, an illusion, an appearance. And what you previously thought you were free to do, you realize you were never free at all. Now, what is the mind free to do, really? Obey the dictums of the body? You know, that's the enthusiastic agreement from this, this bird. <laughs> Yes, he enjoys this, you know, he likes, he sings along because he thinks it's a jam session. <laughs> um, he should give the lecture next time. He'd, have, he'd be much better at articulating this. So once you realize the illusory nature of the self, you start to be interesting, interested in deeper things, deeper things like ideals, principles, meaning. The fundamental concept. It's not enough for you to end your personal suffering. It's, it's now the philosopher's quest. You're chasing the philosopher's stone, not for immortality, but from, for, for just immortality, but from a deep desire to know. So that we call the highest expression of spirituality. Yes. Now, why is it that you arrive at the path of the philosopher? Because by now, you should have realized that you are not your waking self, nor are you your dreaming self, nor are you the no self of deep sleep. You are the awareness in which those three selves appear. 
This is what we talked about last week and also the week before the last. But it's good to review, you know. So notice that there are three states that you experience um, in life, you know. There's the waking state, what you normally attribute as real. So this we call Jagrat, um, waking world. In this waking state, there is Nish, you know. Sorry, there's a conversation in this group chat about where the lighter fluid is because some people are trying to light a fire. We're in a new place right now. So, <laughs> try, yeah, so please ignore that. But um, there's this desire, um, you know, to, to understand who you are. And so right now you think yourself to be, okay, Nish, I'm in this waking world. Nish has his waking life, his waking concerns, his waking desires, um, and then when Nish goes to sleep, he ceases to be Nish. You know, so that, let me mute this, that is an interesting observation. So Nish persists only insofar as I am awake. But once I go to sleep, two things happen. Either I start to dream or I go into deep sleep. If I start to dream, often I take on a new personality. It's a different ego, if you will. And it's a much more fractured ego. It's not as coherent as my waking self-ego. It's sometimes many people. I can be multiple people during the course of the dream. And sometimes that dream is a legit nightmare. You know, so I'm freaking out about something. Oh no, oh, this is awful. But then when I wake up, I feel a tremendous sense of relief because I realize it was just a dream. There was something in me that was able to discern waking as categorically different than dreaming, you know? And that brought me a great sense of relief. I realized I wasn't in the dream. I wasn't oppressed by the dream. The dream was in me. I created all the dream oppressors. You know, they were all in my mind and I emanated them while I was in a state of dream. But look closely. Are you really any different in waking than you are in dream? I mean, even from a hard science perspective, the body that you're in now is fundamentally different than the one you were in yesterday and 12 years from now will be a completely new body, right? All the atoms will change, the food that you eat causes such shifts. And so even this body that you take to be permanent is anything but. You were a baby a couple of years ago, you looked very different than you do now. Some of you are yogis, so for me to say 20 years later you'll look different is a bit incorrect. A lot of you will look as young as you are now for quite some time. But at some point, the wrinkles will come, the hair will widen, and you will see these great changes in your body, but you'll still feel yourself to be, you know, you. So interestingly enough, the body changes, your memories too are incredibly dreamlike and elusive. So think back to a fond memory. Notice that its quality in your mind is not that different from the memory of a dream. So if your memory is dream stuff, and if your waking life is defined by the things you thought happened to you up till now, isn't your personal history also dream substance? You know, so that's an interesting observation that you're in your waking state and you take yourself to be this, then you're in the dream state and you take yourself to be something else, but both of them are immaterial. Now look at this, in the deep sleep state, uh, there is no waking, there is no dream. You're entirely a no-self. But rather than experience a discontinuity in awareness, you were aware of deep sleep too. You were able to wake up the next day and think, ah, I slept like a log. No thoughts. Ah, you know, isn't that interesting? Nish wasn't around 
to have that thought. Oh, no thoughts. Nor was dream Nish around. But in the absence of Nish, waking Nish, and in the absence of like rockstar fantasy dream Nish, there was still me, my awareness. So this is an important point. Who you take yourself to be right now is the body and the mind because we're in waking. That will change when you go to sleep. That will change when you're in deep sleep. And so in this philosophy, we say, take a step back and identify instead with that awareness. The motto is realize, or sorry, um, the motto is be aware of what you are not, rest in what you are. It's, and think of that, the rest, resting in what you are. It should be a feeling of tremendous relief because all the things you've previously feared, death in the body, death to the mind. Thank you, Harini. It feels like we're, Harini says the bird song adds to the vibe. Yes, feels like we're in one of the, uh, the ashrams of India where we do these talks outside. You know, you'll hear all the birds and we often do these talks in the evening when the birds are settling down. Yes. So... Notice this, when you wake up from a nightmare, you feel relieved. When your waking life is a nightmare, you can't wait to go to sleep, right? Yes, R2-D2. <laughs> it's my astro droid as we chart these uncharted territories. <laughs> yes, but you see, when you rest in what you are, and if you are aware of what you are not, you no longer feel the stress that you previously felt. If you take your waking self to be real, the problems are very real. But you can't wait to go to sleep, right? No matter how difficult your waking life is, if you are able to go to sleep, they disappear. All the problems disappear. And, and, and you don't fear this. For some reason, deep sleep is, to your waking self, annihilation. There's no promise that you'll wake up from it. And in fact, when you settle down to deep sleep, it's not like you think to yourself, I hope I'm going to wake up from this. You know, and it's not even like you're sure that you will. You don't even think about it. You're all too ready to jump into that ocean of rest that is no self. You know? So in your waking life, whatever problems you have, deep sleep will solve it. Um, in your dream life, whatever problems you have, waking will solve it. Ah, deep sleep though sounds now like a solution to all the prob problems, right? It sounds like a solution to waking and dreaming. It's not. The dreams, dream self is seen as the causal body. It still contains the seeds of both waking and dreaming. So deep sleep can turn into waking and dreaming as well. So our goal is not to be in a catatonic deep sleep state. The goal is instead to glimpse the awareness that is behind all of those states. Once you do that, you're less concerned with ending personal suffering. It seems to go away on its own. You're less concerned with finding personal pleasure because now there is no incompleteness that you need to address. You know, this awareness is blissful in of itself. So what's your new motive? You're done with the path of suffering. You're done with the path of ecstasy. So your new motive is perhaps deeper. And that motive is from an impersonal place to investigate the nature of how this world is appearing to this awareness. So it's been leading up to this argument, and here it is. So this is the argument from Advaita Vedanta about the nature of reality. Um, and the argument is as follows. Let's take the basic, um, basic understanding of what the world is. And we look around and we say, oh, I see a world of things. And by things, what we really mean is concepts. When I look at the bird, I think bird. You know, I have a concept bird. And when you hear the bird's song, 
You think, but yes, Wesley, we're talking about you. I know you're going to enjoy. He's a bit of a narcissist, you know. He's practicing. He's practicing. He can be. He's beautiful. That's the trap. <laughs> he's a narcissist. <laughs> um, but you hear the song of the bird. And, and sometimes the bird doesn't sing. It speaks like a robot. Um, and that might confuse you. But most of the time when you hear the song of the bird, you think, oh, bird. You know, so it's it's not like you're interacting with a bird, so to speak, as you are with your own concept of bird. So most of you don't know what Wesley looks like. Some of you are, you know, the sound of a African gray. And so you'll be able, I, I can picture the African gray parrot. But most of you have your own idea of bird. You know, some of you are look, seeing a pigeon for all I know. <laughs> You know, so notice that you hear a sound, but it's it's interpreted by the internal faculty, but interacted with not as its actual thing, but as the concept superimposed onto the thing. So let's start there. We look around and we see a world of our own concepts. And to prove this, it's very simple. Sit next to a carpenter and look at a table together. I guarantee you're both looking at very different tables. Yes. Listen to music with a musician. You're both hearing very different things. The musician is picking out bass lines like Westerfer is here, figuring out what the intervals are. Um, whereas you're like, this, this slaps. And that's all you, you pick up from it. You know, so your world is entirely defined by the concepts that you superimpose onto the world. And that's okay. That's a fact. That's our perceptual basis. And we'll start there. In fact, the Norse word, veril, yeah, Harini looked up uh, the bird. <laughs> yes, I like this experiment. You know, when you look up what an African gray looks like, you're like, oh, I realized I was interacting with the concept and not the thing. <laughs> okay, so we're in this world of concepts and uh, the Norse word for world actually um, is verald. Interestingly enough, ver means man. So in the Norse tradition, they call it verald, um, man world, the world as it appears to man, because the Norse were humble enough to realize that what they see was not what was there, but what was able to be discerned by them through their concepts. And you can think of this in terms of linguistic determinism, the language you know how to use to a large degree determines what you will see. There's even some studies in linguistics, um, I think Chomsky and stuff like that, showing how uh, there are tribes that don't know the color blue or, or they, don't, they don't have a word for it. And so they can't tell between shades, whereas the Inuit sees many different kinds of snows. You know, they have uh, hundreds of words for snow. Whereas we... So we live in a world of concepts. So let's take this concept, singing bowl, you know. I like using sight, but you can also use sound. Any sensation that brings to you a sense event to which you prescribe concept, we can start there. So we look and we say, I look out and I see bowl. And what I'm actually seeing is the concept Tibetan singing bowl. So here's the first question. Is there such a thing as Tibetan singing bowl apart from the sensory data that caused such a concept to emerge? That's the first question. Is there such a thing as Tibetan singing bowl? Meaning, if we look around and see a world of concepts, is there really concepts? Or are the concepts pointing to something else? So in this experiment, if you say, yes, there's such a thing um, as Tibetan singing bowl, right? And then I ask you, okay, where is it? Once I've taken the 
sensory data away, it's not like there's something left called Tibetan singing bowl. It's not like there's a property apart from this called Tibetan singing bowl. So if I took it away, you would say, no, Nish, it still exists as a memory, right? Okay, we all know what those are worth. <laughs> Your memory is faith. You have faith in a memory, and we don't want that in this philosophy. We don't want any faith-based arguments. We want to interact with reality as we see it now. We want to make arguments on the basis of perception now. This is what we call a phenomenological approach to, uh, to, to, to reality. Um, so if you say, Nish, the Tibetan singing bowl still exists, it exists as a concept, the reply is, okay, it exists as a memory, that's not good enough. If it exists as a concept, my question to you is, where did that concept come from? And the necessary answer is the sense data. Without the sense data, no concept. And some of you, unless shown a thing, won't have the concept for it. You know. Um, do you know what kitchery is? You might not. But then, if I were to show you a bowl of yellow lentils... Um, that we eat in the Ayurvedic tradition, you'll be like, oh, kitchari, now I know. And now there's the concept. So prior to the sense event, there's no concept. And in our experiment, we saw that there's nothing called concept apart from the sense data. If you can do this step, you would have done a great service to yourself because now you know that everything around you is just sense data. It doesn't mean anything inherently. Independently, there's no meaning apart from your own assigning of labels onto the raw sense data. So when you're in your asana class and your body is in a position that causes a little, let's say, discomfort, it's just sensation. It doesn't yet have to be discomfort. The only reason it's discomfort is because you're comparing it to previous experiences um, and attributing discomfort to it. You know, so this tool alone should free you from all kinds of suffering. So grief arises in the mind, pain arises in the body. We talked how suffering is the attribution of protest to that sensation. You know? So now that we see there's no actual evil in the world, there's no actual suffering in the world, there's just sense data and concepts. Let's concepts come from the sense data. Let's go a little further. So we've already established there is no sensation. And here comes another animal. Yes, it's today is the animal day. Look, Gracie. Okay, she's not interested. Ah, oh, there. Abby's animals have come. <laughs> it's, it's animal house today. <laughs> I like the vibes. Yeah. <laughs> wild day, wild day. So um, now you have no concepts. You, you've realized that concepts don't exist independently of the bowl. But look at the sensory data itself. You know, there's a certain hardness, certain texture. When I hit it, it makes, it makes this sound. It seems like this is the sense event. And this sense event gives rise to the concept Tibetan singing bowl. Without the sense data, there would be no concept Tibetan singing bowl. So now we know concepts don't really exist independently. Only the bowl as a sensation does. But look at this. Does the Tibetan singing bowl as a sensation exist independently? Let's experiment. Close your eyes. I, I have to put it down. I'm still touching it. But if you were to stop engaging with it, not touching it, not looking at it, where is the singing bowl? You might say, in my memory. Ah, there's that fallacy again. 
Now you're accepting it on faith. You're accepting object permanence on faith. Open your eyes and the singing bowl is there. You have, for some reason, a certain faith that when you close your eyes, it's still there. And when you open your eyes, you're just looking at something that was always there. But why not see it this way? It disappeared when you closed your eyes and it re-emerged when you open your eyes because just like there could not be concepts without the sense data, there cannot be sense data without seeing. Do you see? Um, and this is a profound idea. I'm sure some of you have noticed you're like sitting in a room reading, like you're just reading and you're just really in the book and someone calls your name and you don't hear them. Uh, maybe you're selectively not listening. <laughs> but a better example, um, the grandfather clock goes off. You just don't hear it because you're so in the, in the book. So obviously, the sound alone is not enough to cause the corresponding thought, grandfather clock. There needs to be some uh, sensing of the event in order to produce the reality known as grandfather clock or bird or bowl. So just like the essence of the concept is the sensation, the essence of the sensation is the perception, the seeing. Without that, you don't get the sensation. And let's go one step further. Without your awareness, there wouldn't be the seeing. So the ears are picking up the sound, but you're so in the book that your awareness isn't with the ear. And when your awareness is taken away from the ear, then you don't hear. So clearly, perception depends on awareness. Thus far, we're able to show right now in your own immediate uh, perception that all concepts depend on sense events. They emerge from sense events. All sense events depend on Perception. They emerge from perception, so to speak. And all perception depends on awareness. It emerges from awareness, so to speak. So the answer then is nothing exists independently apart from awareness. Only awareness can be shown to exist independently. Since right now it doesn't appear to rely on anything for its existence. And that awareness is you. So what is this universe made of? Eh, disappointingly, you. The church might have been right in a way when they said man was the center of the universe. Very literally, they might have meant it because you are the phenomenological center of this universe. So there are a few questions to ask here and I will ask these questions before we close. The first question is, are you trying to say, Nish, that when I leave a room, it ceases to exist? Yes. Yeah, I'm saying that. Unfortunately. Um, and uh, this isn't a new statement. Uh, Advaita Vedanta has been saying this for thousands of years, literally. Um, but there's also um, Western parallels. So Bishop Berkeley and his phenomenal... I can't pronounce it, but it's a school of philosophy. Um, and this later turns into Heisenberg and Schrodinger, who make the same observation mathematically, that it's just not efficient for reality to be real, real, realizing without an observer. And this is some of the more esoteric dimensions of the wave particle phenomena and the observer effects that we see in quantum mechanics. Now, it's important that we don't link Advaita Vedanta to science. It's an echo, you know, so what you see in quantum mechanics, it's like an echo of what's being discussed in Advaita Vedanta. We don't want to like kind of prove things 
through that model. We prefer this philosophical approach. So yes, the answer is the room doesn't exist if you're not in it to perceive it. And you could say, Nish, no, 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 that's ridiculous. I can do an experiment for you. Okay, I'm going to put a camera here and the video camera will record the room. We are all going to leave the room and then we'll come back. And then I'll show you the video camera and say, see, the room was here. No one was here, but the room was here. Ah, but even that is now being interpreted by your awareness. Do you see? So even the evidence that the room existed separately from you needed your awareness in order for you to like be looking at the video camera. So there's actually no way of proving that the room existed or that anything exists apart from your awareness. You know, that's the fund fundamental argument here. If you're looking for a basic building block of reality, start with awareness and from awareness emanates sense organs or perceptions from those sense organs emanate these sense events like this, the shape, the texture, the color, the sound, and from the sound emanates these concepts. And that's the world. So the clincher is that you are not in the world. Right now, your suffering comes from this feeling of being in the world. Like, oh, there are people out there oppressing me. I'm, I'm, there are things that I want, but I can't get. There are things that I fear that I can't avoid. And you feel disempowered. You know, you feel like a victim in this vast, unknowable universe. But now we flip the script. Dramatically, we flip the script. No, nothing exists out there that isn't in you. Uh, this is a lot of responsibility, by the way. So if you see someone beautiful, if you look at someone, you say, wow, you're smart or wow, you're so charismatic. It's because it's in you. You only recognize in others what's in you because the others are in you, no? Similarly, if you go around saying, what a fool, what, a, what an idiot, that's because you're recognizing it in you. Nothing exists apart from you or it cannot be shown to exist apart from you. Okay, one more idea and then we'll close. Oh, oh, uh, uh, an objection. So the first objection was uh, the camera experiment. Surely you can prove with a camera that the room does exist even if I'm not in the room, right? Uh, and, and we've just disproved that. There's another thing though. What about solipsism? So isn't this scary? If I say that only you exist, are you now going to start discounting? You're, you're going you're gonna to act like, uh, what's his name? Um, in the... In, in the uh, in that movie that caused a lot of people tr Truman Show Truman Show yes uh, Jim Carrey is that him uh, are you gonna start acting like Jim Carrey now like flipping out because nothing is real are you gonna feel really lonely and upset and are you gonna start discounting other people's opinions because after all they're not real are you going to stop engaging in the world intellectually because it's all in you anyway because that's a very good uh, objection to raise solipsism Here's why it's not solipsism. So if you achieve this state and find yourself to be lonely, if you feel a sense of fear or isolation, chances are it's half-baked. Like you haven't yet left the individual. You still think that you're waking world niche. So it would be incorrect to say only niche exists. No, it's the opposite. Niche doesn't exist at all. And you know that from the waking, dreaming, deep sleep argument. No, no, no. How can this non-existent niche say 
that it is the center of the universe, that this universe exists for Nish to satisfy Nish's demands. So Nish might as well discount the needs of others. No, 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 hardly. This body and this mind is an illusion as much as any other body and mind is. Let them all engage together harmoniously. You are not Nish. You, of course, you know that. I am not Nish. I am the awareness in which the illusion of Nish appears. That's why it's not solipsism. Solipsism is when the ego takes itself to be the only thing that exists. And that's an extreme form of narcissism and very dangerous. This is the opposite of that. It negates the ego entirely, just like Kant. Uh, just like Jesus said. Jesus said, deny thyself, right? Deny thyself. Um, Die to be born to eternal life. He who loses his life shall find it. Do you now see the mystical statements encoded in the words of the Christ? Incredible quotes of non-duality. Re re renounce the person. And once you renounce the person, why feel lonely? There is no longer a person to feel lonely. There is just this principle, the Tao, if you will. It's not a person. So please don't make the mistake of personalizing the ego. Uh, sorry, the awareness. You know, this is not God with form. This is the formless God. You are a principle. You are never a person. You are not a mind nor a body. And you are never a person. But you are the supreme individual. Because you are the source of individualness itself. You don't exist. You are existence itself. You aren't conscious of stuff. You are the stuff of consciousness. And you aren't happy. You are happiness itself. Okay, and the final idea, and I know we went over 10 minutes, but this, this is a very crucial idea to wrap it up. Because thus far, I've showed you that nothing can exist apart from awareness. But really, all I've showed you is nothing can be proved to exist apart from awareness. That doesn't necessarily mean that nothing exists, right? Just because your awareness is not capable of seeing it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Well, according to this argument, since it cannot be shown to exist apart from your awareness, functionally speaking, it doesn't exist. But we can go further. We can give you another argument to show you the non-existence of stuff. So even if you're able to say, I am not the mind, I am not the body, I am not the ego, that doesn't prove the mind, body, and ego are illusory. They can exist very real, and you're just kind of stepping away from them. That's what the Sankhya school of yoga believes. So in Sankhya, they don't reject the um, existence of the world. They just think you're not it. It exists, and you're just not it. In Advaita, they go one step further and they say, okay, think about this. You take water and you put it on the stove and you start to heat water up, yes? Now this, this argument is very subtle, so follow it closely because it proves the illusoriness of the things around you. It's very philosophical, but the argument goes as this. Water as a substance does not have the intrinsic property heat. Heat is not a property of water. You can have water without heat. And most water in the world isn't hot. And so water isn't hot. That, that, that much we know. Now, if you put water in a pan and you put the pan on top of a fire, the water becomes hot. Now you have hot water, you know. And so you could say, where did the water get the heat? Well, certainly the heat wasn't an intrinsic property of water. The heat was borrowed from the pan. Was heat an intrinsic property of the pan? 
No. The pan was cold and it will be cold again after you take it off of the fire. So heat is not an intrinsic property of the pan. The pan borrows heat from the fire. But is heat intrinsic to the fire? Certainly. There cannot be fire without the heat. Heat is what it means to be fire. Heat is an intrinsic property of the fire. Since the pan was cold, became hot, and then stops being hot, since the water was cold, was hot for a while, and then stopped being hot, you can now use that same argument for existence itself. Do things come in and out of existence? Yes. Your mind, your body, the world, it's changing. It comes into and leaves existence. Your body wasn't a thing before, like this body. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing. But then it became a thing for a little while. Now here I am in it. And then it stops being a thing. It becomes ashes and, and hopefully uh, my partner will dump it unceremoniously in the Ganga. You know, just kind of throw it in the river. And then it's gone. Because the body and the mind came into existence and leave existence the way the water came into heat and left heat, we can thus conclude that existence is not an intrinsic property of the body and the mind. It's a borrowed property. This is the clincher. The body and mind don't exist independently. They get their existence. They borrow it from something else. And just like the water and the pan borrowed existence from the heat, which uh, from the fire, which was heat itself, your body, your mind, and your personality borrow its existence from the one thing that is existence itself, awareness. So that is the complete teaching. Awareness emanates mind and body. Mind and body emanate the world. Mind and body and the world cannot be shown to exist apart from awareness. And since awareness is the basic building block of reality, it is existence itself. And it is by the light of awareness that other things exist. So everything, the entire universe depends on you. It rests, as it were, in the open palm of your own awareness. And how can you die? Body and mind can die. Time, space, causality emerges from body-mind, from awareness. This awareness is not eternal. It's, it's beyond concepts of eternal. For something to be eternal, it must be in time. Not, with, not the case with this awareness. This awareness is not all-pervading. For something to pervade everything, it has to be in space. But no, space is in it. So what can it pervade? Non-eternal, yet undying. Nowhere, yet all-pervading. And maybe now we can start to understand the ultimate statement of Western esoteric traditions. God is a circle whose circumference is nowhere, but whose center is everywhere. And you're it. So let's close there with a final chant of Om um, to seal in this teaching, to integrate this teaching. You're welcome to join me for the chant or just receive the vibration. We'll inhale to Om now. Om. 
Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Om, peace, peace, peace. Thank you all for being my teachers. <laughs>